Uh, so my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. Really glad to be with you guys. Uh, about 15 years ago, I was in the basement uh, of a church in South Jamaica, Queens, preaching my second ever sermon. Uh, my grandmother had heard that I was a preacher, that I had preached one fabulous, amazing sermon in my life, and she convinced her pastor to let me preach. Uh, as I stood there, I was probably as nervous as you can be, mainly because I was preaching uh, in front of my whole family. My uncle, who was a comedian in the family, walked over to me and said, hey, your mother said that you are a preacher. I hope that you don't stink it up. I said, thanks a lot, Unc. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Uh, really quick note, if you're preaching in front of a room of complete strangers, even if it's a complete dud, get them next time. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, you don't know any of those people. You can just run out of there as quickly as possible and try to forget it as fast as possible. But when it's in front of your family, they're going to be talking about this for a while. <laughs> so I was nervous, and I was thinking, maybe, even though what I've written is not that great, maybe when I get up to preach, the Lord is going to speak through me, and it's going to be wonderful. And that did not happen. Uh, I stood up, and halfway through the message, I knew how bad it was. I was like, this is, this is really, really bad. Um, <laughs> And as soon as the sermon is over, this is like the most raw and vulnerable part uh, of the preacher's life. Like right when you're done, the pastor walked over to me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, man, nice suit. You look really good up there. You look clean. My Burlington Coat Factory Calvin Klein suit was ironed and it was, it was really good. Uh, and I walked around that day trying to basically avoid every conversation possible but people kept on cornering me and telling me how much they appreciated the message. And I was like, no, 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 the message I just preached, not, the, not something that was said earlier. And over and over again, people were remarking really how deeply they were impacted. I think it's because the scripture that I preached on was one that is so powerful and so profound, even a miserably uh, nervous rookie preacher could just read it, ask some questions, and sit down, and people could still get something from it. Today is crack number two at this sermon. Uh, <laughs> and I hope that this has gone from terrible to at least mediocre, and uh, no matter what, um, I, I, I know that we'll get something out of it. Uh, we're in our series on the book of Romans in the eighth chapter, and all that we've been going through this summer has been leading us and leading us to this very point, and it's a question that Paul asks that the way you answer this question will determine everything about you. Here's a question he asks. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is really for you, like for real, if God is for you, then what opposition internally or externally could actually stand up against you? Now, this is true if you're needing some courage and uh, you don't know what the next step is to turn at job or in a relationship, uh, if God was really, really for you, it would change everything about you. Now, here's what I know to be true about me, and I might also be true of you. Paul makes the argument over and over again in the scripture that the answer of that question to whether or not God is for me is an enthusiastic yes, but you and I don't always feel like we do. Better stated, we don't always live like God is actually for us. How would your life be different if you were fully confident 
And I mean fully confident that God is for you in your best moments and in your worst moments, in the mediocre moments, that God himself is for you. Now, one of the ways that I, I know my, that I struggle in answering this question is uh, we do not live in a grace-based society. Uh, none of the things that are good in my life feel like they're permanent. Everything that I have is good, with the exception of the love of my parents, feels kind of like it could be gone tomorrow. Even the things that you've worked really, really hard for for years and years, a bad, you, can do, you can undo everything you've done in 30 seconds. Uh, in the last number of months, there's been story after story of scandal after scandal of preachers who have started these amazing churches, and they've reached all of these people, and now they're being shown to have lived double lives. What they've worked for decades to build has come crashing down in a matter of days. So in one way, I struggle to believe and really hold on to this concept that God could be for me because everything else seems to be transient. Nothing really seems to be permanent in my life. But here's where we're going today. No matter what else you get, if you're, if you're tired and you want to take a nap, take a nap right after I say this. God is for you. God is enthusiastically, permanently for you. Now, that stating is kind of hard to hear for some people because I think another way that our culture interprets the words that God is for us is they hear, God is for everything that I do. And one of the false narratives of our culture is that in order to be for someone, you also have to be for everything that they do. Uh, this past week, we were out on vacation and uh, we were uh, driving, which is a, a nice retreat from all the city walking. And my son didn't want to get in the car seat, and uh, I called him to get in the car. He ran away from his mother and got close to running in the street. What happened? I yoked that boy up like, uh, like there was no tomorrow. Um, I am enthusiastically and eternally for him, but I am absolutely not for everything he does. If you're sitting on a plane and there's a three-year-old kicking the back of your chair for the entire flight, if you turned around look at the mother like, yo, mamacita, what are we doing? Are we raising our kids? What are we doing here? <laughs> you would believe eternally that you could, that mother needs to be against what that kid is doing in order to raise him or her right. God doesn't have to be for everything that we do in order to be for us. So I wanted to make that really clear uh, up front, but God is for you. Man, I hope you walk away just thinking that and knowing that if God is for you. There's a couple things in your life that will make you question that. Uh, the first is when you have unanswered prayers in your life. Yeah. Uh, these are not prayers for something silly or something transient. I'm talking about real, gut-level prayers that you have. Your family might be in serious disrepair. There might be a real fracture in your family. You might have prayed for a long time, a decade, for your family to come together and to finally have a good Christmas where people could just get along. And year after year, that prayer might be unanswered. You might be praying for a relationship in your life, and you might see everybody else living their Instagram best uh, and loving life, and it hasn't shown up for you. What happens when we have deep prayers in our life that go unanswered with a no or a not yet is I think the fear starts to come in our life that, God, maybe you're not for me, because if you were for me, then you should have done this. Uh, another thing that makes me question whether or not God is for me is, quite honestly, how uncommitted I am. Here's a question I have in my life. God, how can you be for me when I am so inconsistently for you? How can you truly be for me when I'm inconsistent in being for me? It's a question that 
We have, on my good days, it feels like God is for me, uh, but on the days that I've done nothing but eat Cheez-Its and watch Netflix, it doesn't feel like God truly is for me. It feels like God is always walking around with a low level of disappointment in me, that I could always be doing better. And to hear that God is for me, on one hand, is freeing. Man, it's so freeing. But on the other hand, it just feels a little bit too good to be true. Another reason that many of us struggle to feel and to really take hold of what Paul is saying in the scripture is that we're just unfamiliar with Christianity and the story. Uh, you might have gone to church when you were a kid, or you might have grown up and, and, and been to church a couple of times, or maybe this is your first time coming back to Christianity in a long time, or man, maybe this is your first time really exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus, period. And because you're unfamiliar with what the gospel story really says, not what you think it says, but what it really actually says, you just think that God is someone that will give you good things if you do good things, but mainly you just need to not get him mad. Uh, I remember years ago, um, I had basketball practice and my parents weren't able to uh, pick me up that day for whatever reason. And I arranged to get a ride with a friend's uh, mother. And I thought it was gonna be me and the friend going home, but something happened and he ended up going somewhere else, so it was just me and his mother, a woman that was a very lovely person, but I had never spent any time with her. And the whole time, uh, I was just trying not to inconvenience her. So we were driving and she was like, hey, are you hungry? Uh, I was like, my stomach was bubbling, I was starving. We're passing by Popeyes, I'm thinking about biscuits, and I'm like, nope, I'm good, I'm on this keto diet, and I'm, I'm actually pretty, uh, pretty good. It started in 97, by the way. Even though I was hungry, in my brain, I just didn't want to inconvenience her. We get about a couple blocks from that house, and I'm tapping my pocket, reaching for my keys, and I realize I don't even have my keys. We get to that house, and she's like, all right, I'll wait outside until you get in. And it's like the nervous beads of sweat. In my brain, I'm trying, not, I'm trying my absolute best to not inconvenience her. I know my parents are not going to be home for a couple of hours, and I'm thinking, Am I going to make this woman sit with me for two hours? Or am I going to make her take me back all the way home? Uh, so I walked around the house. Uh, there was an outside switch that I turned on. I turned on the outside light, which kind of look, looked like the inside lights were on. I went around the corner and was like, see you later. Uh, and I sat outside in the cold for two hours like an idiot. A lot of people treat God the way I treated that woman. That your goal in life is just to do just enough, get just close enough, to not inconvenience or get God angry, mainly because you don't know the full extent of all that God wants to do in your life. You don't know that God is actually for you. Uh, the last one that makes people really struggle with believing that God is for them is when there's unconfessed sin in your life. And uh, by unconfessed sin, I don't mean something that's small, that you pronounce the book of Malachi and Malachi, uh, but something that you have done and you're still doing that you're ashamed of. Something about you that you would be terrified for other people to know about you. I've had my own seasons in life where I've walked around Christian circles and going to churches where I had unconfessed sin in my life and I could not for the life of me think that God was for me because I hated me. I hated the fact that there were things that I was doing that I desperately didn't want to do and I couldn't seem to stop and it felt like an impossibility to think that God could be for me, even in those moments, because the way I was living my life, I knew was so far from what God wanted, I didn't think that God could be for me, 
even thinking that God, um, or, or to believe that God doesn't have to be for everything I do in order to truly be for me. A lot of times it's also when people have done stuff that they can't uh, forgive themselves for. And maybe you told other people about it, but you still can't forgive yourself for it. Uh, you've gone beneath your standard of what life should look like. And now you can't believe that God is for you because of what you've done. Here's the good news of what we're going for today. God is for you. I'm going to prove it in just a couple of minutes. This text in Romans um, is said that uh, to say that God is for us means that everything in God's sovereign plan, his redemptive acts, and the situations in our lives have been and always will be in accordance with his love for us. Whether the problem is our sin or the suffering in the world, there is nothing in our past our present, or our future that is outside God's loving intentions for us. God's loves, God loves us. He is for us. And everything in Romans 8 is leading us here. Now, there's three things that Paul highlights in this text that I want to present to us today as proof, as an argument for why you can walk away from here today feeling confident that God is for you. Uh, and the number one thing that we see in the scripture is that God provides for people that cannot provide for themselves. God provides for people that cannot provide for themselves. So often in my own life and certainly in conversations with other people, there's this low-lying fear and there's this belief that we have underneath, uh, whether or not we know that we believe it or not, that God is waiting for you to hit to a certain point in life. And whenever you hit this point, whatever that looks like, maybe you're comparing yourself to someone else who you think is a really good Christian, Whenever you hit this point, then God will be for you. But you kind of have to go from here to here on your own. It's like Ninja Warrior, the gauntlet. And if you can do enough pull-ups to get there, then finally God one day will be pleased with you. But Scripture gives us a much different story than that. Here's what it says um, uh, in, in Scripture. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn, among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's what scripture is saying. From eternity past, through the present, through eternity future, God has foreknown you. He has already known you. God knows everything about you. The things that disappoint you about you don't disqualify you. God has known you from eternity past. Uh, the scriptures in, um, in Jeremiah where God is speaking to the prophet, and he says, before you were formed in your mother's belly, I knew who you were. Nothing about you, your character, your struggles surprises God. And here's what's so profound about this. God is not for the people who already have figured it out. God is not waiting around to decide if he'll like you. From the beginning of time, God has been working in the lives of his children for their good and his glory. Uh, there's a profound work in theological terms. Uh, it's a book called The Pursuit of God, written by a man named A.W. Tozer, and it's something that I read years ago, and I would, man, I'd strongly recommend you read this if you haven't read it already. It's a short book, but it's really, really profound. Uh, the author has a way in describing this verse that we just read, and here's how he says it. He says, Christian theology teaches the doctrine of grace which brief, briefly stated means that this, that before a man can seek God, God must have first sought the man. Before anyone can think a right thought of God, there must have first been a work of enlightenment done within him. 
We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father that has sent me draws him. And it is by this very drawing that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of even coming to him. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him, and all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Scripture teaches us that God provides for people that cannot provide from themselves. If you feel like you cannot provide enough strength or discipline or clarity to move forward, good, you can't. The Bible tells us in these very explicit terms all that God has done to be, that God foreknows you, predestined you, which means that God set out a path for you uh, uh, in order to be, for you to become more like Christ. And God called you out of darkness into his light. And God has justified you freely from all of your sins. God has glorified us by giving us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, all done uh, 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 not because God waits for you to fix yourself, but because God provides for people who cannot provide for themselves. In Christianity, we're all Paris Hiltons. There are no self-made millionaires. We woke up one day with an inheritance. That's probably the first time you've been compared to Paris Hilton <laughs> in life. Paul says this in Philippians 1 and 6. Paul says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will complete it. A lot of us don't have confidence in God's completion of us because we don't know that God has began us. Now, Paul is confident in this uh, because God routinely, all throughout the course of Scripture, provides for people who cannot provide for themselves. And this is why this is really huge. There are some people, because they don't believe that God is for them, they struggle so much to take a next step to follow Jesus. They come to church for a couple of months, there's a rocky, there's a rocky period in their life, and they go away until they can come back and fix themselves up. And that might be, that might be you. That might, today might be the first time you're back in a, in a couple of months or a couple of years because you're believing that I can only rest in God if I can provide for myself. And that is the opposite of what God does in our lives. And what God wants us to do is to simply trust in him. Whenever I talk to someone and they are afraid to take the next step to following Jesus, say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know how I would me measure up and make my commitment. Uh, I don't say it as, as bluntly as I'll say it now, uh, but the problem is they're not believing in Jesus, they're believing in themselves. They're not willing to place their faith in Jesus because to place your faith in Jesus means that you are letting go of control and the direction and the destiny uh, and the capacity of your life to someone else. Oftentimes what they mean is, I can't figure out how I can do everything that God wants me to do instead of thinking, God, what is this wonderful plan that you've been working out from eternity past in my life? Uh, I heard a a phenomenal quote um, uh, from a pastor in, in Brooklyn, my boy James Roberson at the Bridge Church. Uh, he said it like this. He says, if I don't remember God's sovereignty, all of the things that God has done in my life, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, if I don't remember God's sovereignty, I will always dwell on my inability. You will spend so much energy thinking about all of the ways that you are, are unable, uh, that you don't measure up, and you won't spend nearly enough time focusing and thinking through all of the implications of what it means for God to be for you. Now, God wants us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put it on him because to not do so means that you and I will slip. Uh, there's a, a passage of scripture where Jesus is in the, uh, he's teaching and he sends his disciples in a boat and tells them to go to the other side. 
And as they're in the boat on the other side, the scripture says they see someone that looked like a man walking up to them on the water, and they were afraid for good reason. Peter sees him and thinks that it might be Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, if it's you, call me to come out into the water, and I'll come. Peter steps out. Jesus calls him. He steps out in the water, and everything is all good until scripture says he starts to look around, and he sees the wind swirling the waves around him. And immediately, once he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he starts to sink. He starts to think about, how am I going to navigate the situation? And he starts to sink. Uh, thankfully, the gracious hands of Jesus immediately pull him out. But that's a metaphor for our lives. When we spend our time thinking about our inability, we will always forget God's sovereignty, and you and I will immediately start to sink. Now, the second reason that we can know from this passage of Scripture that God is enthusiastically and undoubtedly for you, not only does he provide for people who cannot provide for themselves, but God gives unmerited, unearned favor, also known as grace. God gives unmerited, unearned grace. This is the economy in which God operates. The scripture in verses 31 and 32, it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And here's Paul's argument. He who did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Think about what Paul is saying here. He's making the argument that if God did not withhold his own son, but offered him up for us all, how in the world can you doubt that God is for you? A few chapters back in Romans 5, Paul goes even further to say that God gave us Jesus and offered up his son for us on the cross, not for the godly, but for the ungodly. Now, Paul was a Jew, and it's really interesting that he even chose this analogy because Paul, in some ways, is going back to the days of Abraham. Uh, Abraham, for any Bible nerds in here, was the father of faith, and monotheism was kind of birthed out of this guy named Abraham. God gave Abraham a test. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son up to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham, thinking that maybe God can do something in the midst, is obedient and takes his son with him up the mountain to sacrifice him. Abraham is sharpening his knife, and as he pulls the knife out, the scripture says, an angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Abraham, don't lay a hand on that boy. There's a ram in the bush that I want you to sacrifice instead. But here's the pronouncement that God gives Abraham uh, for the willingness to sacrifice him. Because you were willing to fact sacrifice your son for me, I know more than anything else that you love me. Here's what Jesus, is, Paul is getting at in the scripture in Romans 8, going back to the days of Abraham, because God was willing to give us his son, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for us. God is for you because God gives unmerited grace. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, it was my wife and I's uh, fifth wedding anniversary, uh, so we went to the, yes, give it up for that. She survived, she survived, give it up. So, you know, to pay her back, we went to the Diamond District, you know, to get her ring cleaned. And um, we don't have that upgrade money, so I figured if we can't upgrade it, we can clean it and make it look, throw some 20s on it, make it look really clean. And when we were there, after they had finished doing all of the cleaning, what they do, what jewelers do is they take out this beautiful uh, black velvet, and they do that to contrast the beauty of the diamond against this black velvet. 
What they're hoping that you get is when they bring this contrast is for you to be able to see all of the intricacies and the beauty of the diamond that is being presented to you. When God wants to show us the beauty of the gospel, he presents the stunning, flawless diamond of the sacrifice of Christ, and he puts it against the blackness of our sin and our inability to show us the depth of God's love for us. And in showing us this this display of God's love, God is emphatically letting us know that God is for us. When God gave us Jesus, he gave us the brilliant diamond against the darkness of our undeservingness to show us how dope his grace really is in our lives. Now, the last thing that Paul argues for to prove to us, and the last thing I hope you think, I hope you take with you today uh, to reassure you and to, and to lead you to more confidence that God is for you is that God gives us pardon for sin. So number one, God provides for people who cannot provide for themselves. God gives us unmerited favor. Whether or not you can understand it or whether or not you would do that, this is just how God rocks. Number three, God gives us pardon for sin. Now, the scripture here, Paul says this uh, phrase. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He, is, he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Earlier, I mentioned that a lot of us struggle to believe that God is for us, and mainly we struggle with that concept because we, haven't, we have yet to have received the forgiveness that God actually offers Scripture here is really interesting. Uh, Paul uses the first line. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who can bring an accusation against God's people? And it's really interesting, and maybe this is my legal brain nerding out for a second, so stick with me. There are different standards of proof for establishing an accusation and actually proving guilt. Part of the reason America was in an uproar about the lack of indictments uh, for police officers shooting unarmed black men is because they weren't even getting indicted They weren't even going to trial. Forget the whole uh, beyond a a reasonable doubt. This was just, is there any probable cause that this thing might have happened? You can indict a ham sandwich. Now, Paul uses a language not of whether or not charges that you can be found guilty. Paul takes it a step, five steps backwards and says, nobody could even bring an accusation against you. And here's why. Because God is the one who justifies you don't justify. Your friends don't justify you. Your judgmental parents don't justify you. Your job doesn't justify you. Your income doesn't justify you. Uh, God alone is the one who justifies. And God has determined in his infinite wisdom that for those who place their faith in Christ, the debt is clean. As far as the east is separated from the west, so far has God removed you from your sins. These things which will never touch, this is what God offers. And a lot of us wade in our own inability and wade in frustration and disappointment because we have yet to actually fully receive what God is offering us in Christ Jesus, which is forgiveness of sins. Paul takes it a step further and he says, not only did Jesus die for us, but he has been raised. And he is also at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. In the Greek, this is a present tense verb that Paul is saying that right now, Jesus, the Son of God, is at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you. God is for you. I was doing some research, and I came across uh, an amazing quote. Full disclosure, I found this on Twitter, but this is where I get some of my best ideas. 
It says, Dear discouraged believer, your risen Lord never stops thinking of you, caring for you, feeling your sorrow, interceding for you, and guiding this world, this universe, right down to the very atoms towards your eternal advantage. God is for you. Now, I think uh, this is best seen in one of the teachings of Jesus. Um, if you've been to church for any length of time, you probably have heard this story uh, a number of times. It's the story that most people call the prodigal son, but there's a better name for the story. It's really about a father and two sons. Throughout the course of his life and ministry, Jesus told a lot of stories, and he's probably most famous for this one. Here's how it goes. Um, there are two children in the story, and it starts out with this line, that there was a man with two sons. Uh, the younger son runs off uh, from his father. He asks his dad for his inheritance, and he goes and he spends all of his money. And one day, he wakes up in a pit of misery, not even able to feed himself, and he thinks to himself, man, at my pop's crib, everybody who's working there, everybody down to the lowest person, they're at least eating edible food. I need to just go home and maybe I'll tell my pops that I'll come and be hired as one of your servants and maybe he would accept me back. Here's what the son, the younger son was believing. He was wondering whether or not by breaking his father's laws, he had broken their relationship beyond repair. People who tend to be like the younger brother, and this is probably 50% of the room, uh, you wonder whether or not God could be for you when you have a very clear record of doing wrong. This is not ambiguous. This is not, uh, if you look at it from a different perspective, you can see my point in this. This is, you're wrong. The younger son starts to write down some notes and think about, all right, this is an argument I'm going to present to my dad to convince him why he should be for me. He makes his way out into the journey, and the scripture says that when his father sees him a long way off, he runs to him, and the scripture says he throws his arms around him, and he gives him a kiss. This is the language of someone who has been missed. The younger son starts out with, hey, pops, I'm so sorry. Hey, this is what I did, and this is what I plan to do. He shushes his son, doesn't even let him finish his argument, and says, yo, go quick, kill the fattened calf. Today, my son who was lost is now found. My son who was dead is now alive. Now it's time to party. Uh, scripture writers uh, include a, a detail about this uh, that, Je uh, that uh, Jesus referred to as the fattened calf. Uh, the fattened calf was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that people reserved for the best day of their life. Here's the scripture is telling us that the one who was way away, simply in his return, has made his father have the best day of his life. That's act one of the story. Act two of the story comes with the older brother, and about half of you in this room are more like the older brother, and depending on what day it is, this is more me than it is a younger brother. The older brother hears all this commotion. He comes in from the field. He sees everybody running into the building. He hears a DJ playing swag and surf, and he's like, yo, what is going on? Why is everybody partying? He smells the food from the halal truck, and he's like, yo, no, 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 man. I know he ain't killed a fattened calf. What is going on? The father uh, tells him to come inside. He refuses. He stands outside, won't come in. So the father goes outside the party. Scripture says to plead with him, your, your brother, 
uh, earlier, the older brother was calling him your son. He wasn't even saying my brother. He was saying, this son of yours, this boy of yours went out and did this, and you give him the fattened calf. All of these years I've been with you doing everything. Uh, all of these years I've been working for you tirelessly, and you give to him what you would never give to me. You didn't even give me and my friends uh, a young goat. Now, the father is pleading with him and letting him know, we had to party. This brother of yours was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. How could we not celebrate this? Here's what the older brothers think in life. They think that God could only be for you if you have done enough to have earned it. His problem was mathematics. I have done way more than him, and yet you have given him way more. This fattened calf, this, I'll never get this opportunity to have the type of party that you're throwing at him right now. If you are more like the younger sibling, you will struggle to believe that God is for you because grace sounds too good to be true. But if you're more like the older brother, if you're more like the older brother, you will struggle to believe that God is for you because grace sounds too foolish to be good. It sounds wasteful. Why would you spend the, your life's best thing on this fool who comes back in? He hasn't even demonstrated anything that he can do to make up for it. And here's why Jesus tells a story, not to make people feel sentimental and sappy, but to say the way that all of you are approaching God is way wrong. You haven't even scratched the surface to know the height, the depth, and the breadth to which you and I could never be separated from the love of God, to know what it is to be loved by this God who foreknows us, predestines us, calls us, justifies us, and glorifies us. God is for us. The Father welcomes them both into the party, and the party is a place where you can have a good time. Uh, the party is a place where you can let yourself down and not worry about anything other than whether or not you're getting the electric slide right. The party is a place where you are invited to laugh, to, to let your hair down, to celebrate, to eat good food, and to be with family. This is what God is after in your life. Not this maniacal, every single day, living in the courtroom of your own judgment, whether or not you have measured up, but simply to know that God is for you. And here's what I want to challenge you to do in two very specific ways. We're going to get to this a little bit next week, but because God is for you, uh, I want you to take that as trust, to take that next step in following him. Uh, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about our values, and one of them is discipleship. Uh, discipleship is basically obedience to the next step. Here's what I know to be true. In your life, in my life, there are, there are clear things that you know that God wants you to do. All of our next step looks different, but I want you to take it knowing that God is for you. Even if you don't know what the outcome is, take that next step. Even if it's going to put you at odds with some people, take the next step. Even if you can't figure out the 20 things behind that, take that next step. For us at Renaissance, we have another way that we ask people to take their next step, uh, which is the next step in placing their faith in Jesus. And most people struggle to take that next step because they don't know how they'll be able to sustain themselves. And here's what I'm telling you. You'll never be able to sustain yourself. This is not the point of the message at all, but rather to trust yourself to God who can sustain you. Uh, some of you guys at some point in life have filled out a next step card and maybe you've gone to the baptism class, maybe you haven't, uh, but do it again. If, if you know that God is calling you to take a next step, maybe that next step for you is publicly declaring your faith in him. Fill out a next step card. It's at the info desk or connection card. Talk to Aswan, me or Lester. I would, nothing would make me happier than to set up a conversation with you to talk about your next step in faith. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, uh, you know all about us. Uh, nothing that we've ever done surprises you. Nothing that we uh, are, nothing that we are struggling with uh, offends you to the point that you will run away from us. God, help us to feel that you are for us. Period. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.